Pantry Studio production. The following may contain strong language and deals with adult themes. Listener discretion is advised. The cases they've worked on have captivated people in practically every corner of the world and inspired made-for-TV films and now cinematic blockbusters. The Conjuring universe has been based on their cases from the parents to the Hodgson family in Enfield, London, England. You've heard of that. It's the Enfield poltergeist? Yes, that one. And now, the third in the series will take its roots in Connecticut. It, too, is alleged to be based on real events. There's around 18,000 people that call it home. And it seems quiet and peaceful for the most part. The kind of place that most people would be happy to call home and maybe raise a family. The last 12 years or so, there's been a virtual non-existence of murder. Not a lot of places with that many people living within its city limits can claim that. That is something that makes this episode so intriguing. Well, that among other things. You see, this was a first in a lot of regards. The first time that a defense was used in an American court system that claimed that the defendant was not guilty because the devil made him do it. Also, the first time a murder had ever occurred in the small and quiet community of Brookfield, Connecticut. Yes, it was their first murder in the history of that town. And it said that it all began with a challenge. A challenge of a young man who had cursed demonic entities to take him on, instead of his fiancé's younger brother, whom, it was said, was in the midst of becoming demonically possessed himself. Now, there's so much to this story that books have been written about it. And maybe some of them should have been published under the fictional genre because this is hard to believe, but many say that this tale is true. There's been television films about it. It even appeared on an episode of A Haunting. And now, the story will appear as the latest film in the Conjuring Cinematic Universe that was released June 4th, 2021, entitled The Conjuring 3. The Devil Made Me Do It. These are the Mountain Mysteries, and this is Episode 14, Murder Comes to Town, The Mountain Mystery of Arn Cheyenne Johnson. I will be the last to fall, I won't shed a tear for them to see. There are over 1.9 billion square acres in the United States alone, and 24% of those are mountainous. The secrets that these regions hold are enormous. Reports of mysterious creatures, strange sightings and sounds, ghosts and murders, and those who have seemingly vanished. There are questions that need asking and answers worth finding. These are the Mountain Mysteries, 
Here's Chris Long. Before we get started, I'd like to thank Stacy Underwood Gullet, who was already a Patreon member and has been for some time, but she recently increased her pledge, helping us cover even more of the expenses that the Mountain Mysteries podcast and the gatherings throw at us. Stacy, I cannot begin to thank you enough. And by the way, Stacy is also the lead investigator for 606 Paranormal. Here we go. It was in the summer of 1980 when our story begins. An 11-year-old boy, David Glatzel, who was by all accounts mild-natured, sweet, and kind, was helping his older sister Debbie and her boyfriend Arnie Johnson fix up a house they had just rented. Well, shortly after they moved in, David began to see a mysterious ghost man who frightened him beyond any words. Well, eventually, the ghost man transformed into something more menacing. At night, he became a demonic monster that threatened to steal David's very soul. Lorraine and Ed Warren explained how the events unfolded that day and into those evening hours during a television program conducted as they discussed the events of this unique case. As David went to get up off the bed, he described this man as appearing. He could see everything about the man, the plaid shirt that he was wearing, uh, the, the jeans that he had on. He could see everything about him. He could describe everything about him. Now, David would find it very hard to articulate to that extent. David had a very slight learning disability, and usually children with learning disabilities find it very hard to articulate regarding seeing things in that type of perspective that he was explaining it in, in so much clarity. Now, he told his mother at this point that he wanted to go right home. And the mother said, no, we're working, we're finishing off what we're going to be doing. We'll be going home in a little while. Well, he pouted, walked out of the house. He was frightened. And that night, in their home in Brookfield, it appeared again. Only when it appeared that, that night in the darkness of the evening, which is the psychic hours also of the night, which start at nine o'clock and go till six o'clock in the morning, he described this man as appearing. Everything was exactly the same, except that he said the man looked burnt and he had feet like a deer which meant they were cloven. And from that well, Keep time, in mind that the man that she's talking about is a ghost. You know, there was no man there. Mm -hmm. Right. And we were to later find out that this was not even a ghost. It was a demonic spirit. That appeared to this child. That was really the introduction to his becoming a victim of diabolical possession. Well, things took a desperate turn when inexplicable scratches and bruises appeared all over the young boy. He began to growl and to speak with a diabolical voice. Then, after his family witnessed him being attacked by invisible hands, they decided to seek help from a priest and famed demonologist, Ed and Lorraine Warren, who concluded the child needed 
an exorcism. Now, we worked for months on this case. There were three exorcisms over David. They were very violent. The phenomena that occurred in the home was very, very violent. But the priests remained very steadfast in their dedication to the case. And there were seven Roman Catholic priests involved in that case. Three of them schooled and trained in Rome itself at the Vatican. We had psychiatrists, medical doctors. We had Catholic priests. We had psychic researchers staying there day and night. We had relatives. We had the family. We had photographs. We had recordings. We had police officers in there. We had all the evidence to prove in any court of law that this young boy was diabolically possessed and the young man who helped him later, Arnie Johnson, who was 18 years old and lived in the house, came under demonic possession. Well, over the next several weeks, a struggle between good and evil followed. Both the family and the Warrens witnessed David levitate, quit breathing, and ultimately predict a murder. It's during the final exorcism that Debbie Glotzel's boyfriend, Arnie Johnson, puts himself between the devil and the young boy. He challenged the demon to leave David's body and enter his own. While Johnson's intentions were pure, those results could only be called disastrous. Five months later, in the midst of a heated confrontation with his landlord, Johnson pulled a knife and stabbed him to death. He later said he had no remembrance of the confrontation whatsoever. Was Arnie Johnson behaving upon his own violent impulses, or was he, as the defense later argued, possessed by the devil? Well, as you can imagine, this case captured the public's imagination and became an international topic of discussion. As a believer, attorney Martin Manella became the first lawyer in history to try to prove the existence of the devil. And for the first time in United States history, the devil was put on trial and the world held its breath in anxious expectation. Hi, I'm Chris Lone, the content creator and host of the Mountain Mysteries podcast, Gatherings, and the Mountain Mysteries Blurs. I'd like to remind you, if you can't get enough of the Mountain Mysteries, all you got to do is log online to www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. There you can listen to podcasts, you can submit your own short stories as the blurs to be featured on our Patreon site, and in addition, if you've got anything that you'd like for us to discuss as a case, as a podcast episode, you can contact us right there as well. It's all at www.themountainmysteriespodcast.com. And don't forget to check out the new line of clothing, apparel, and accessories from The Mountain Mysteries exclusively. It's our official line. And right now, through June 25th, take an extra 10% off. If you're a Patreon subscriber to The Mountain Mysteries, then you will be eligible for 15% off. Now through June 25th. So check us out on the Mountain Mysteries Podcast.com. Thanks for listening.
And now, back to the Mountain Mysteries, Episode 14, Murder Comes to Town. Any evidence that you could prove a case with in any court of law in the United States, we had, and the judge would not allow us to bring it in. If he did, Arnie Johnson would not have spent two or three years in prison. But in, in this case, what had really happened was is that there, there was a tragedy that had occurred. Now, the tragedy came about, we believe, and all the clergy involved believe, now, Ed spoke of one extra priest. This one extra priest was a demonologist for the church. He also was going to be testifying. He also was able to get permission to testify, although he was not from this particular Catholic diocese. He was from another Connecticut diocese. And, and keep in mind that this case, Chris, made international headline. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody was waiting for this lawyer, Manella, and ourselves, and all the investigators and the priests to step into that courtroom and to bring our evidence. The very first morning, the judge said, no way, we're not allowing the devil made me do it case in this courtroom, which was wrong because the devil does exist. Many devils exist. And a skeptical public is the best protection that the devil has. Now, people can poo-poo the whole idea of ghosts and haunted houses and devils all they want. But look for the evidence, look for the proof. And you know, Lorraine and I did set a precedent in 1990. We went into a court of law and we proved that a woman was driven out of her house with her small boy by ghosts. Now you go and you do that kind of stuff because you've got some evidence. You've got to have evidence, you know. You're not going to go and say, oh yeah, I've seen a ghost flying around. What we want is hard evidence. And for the skeptics out there that say to us, there's no such thing that exists, it's ridiculous. Every great religion in the world today is based on a supernatural world that worships God. We call God by different names, maybe, but that's all right. It's the same God. And what we're proving here every day through our New England Society for Psychic Research is that that God exists and devils and ghosts and demons all exist. A CBS News poll about 12 years ago indicated that over half of Americans do indeed believe what Ed had just stated that ghosts, demons, as well as angels do exist. Johnson's attorney, Martin Manella, said that the courts have dealt with the existence of God. Now they're going to have to deal with the existence of the devil. It was on February 16, 1981, that Arne Cheyenne Johnson called in sick to his job at a tree service company. He went to a kennel where his fiance worked and where Alan Bono was present. Now, Bono was their landlord and her employer. Also with them was Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary and Arne's sister Wanda. Bono took them out to lunch at a local bar and began to drink heavily. It was after lunch that they're said to have went back to the kennel. Debbie went to get the girls a pizza and insisted they get back as quickly as possible, anticipating trouble. Bono was apparently drunk by this point, and he was agitated grabbing the young Mary and refusing to let her go. Arne had left a few minutes prior when he came back and it said that he was completely different. At some point, a heated exchange ensued between Arne and Alan, and Arne then committed 
the first ever murder recorded in the 193-year history of Brookfield by stabbing Bono with a five-inch pocket knife several times. Arne's sister Wanda recounted the following events to the police. She said that Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried unsuccessfully to pull Johnson away. Johnson was growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Well, Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Arne Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the murder and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on a bill of $125,000. This was the first murder in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. Before the murder, Johnson was, by all accounts, a regular teenager with no criminal record. He loved sports. He had received awards for his participation in baseball. Ed called him an all-American kind of guy, saying that if you were going to have a son, he's the kind of boy you'd want. He showed a great deal of respect and courtesy to those around him. As a matter of fact, people who knew Johnson described him as a hard-working landscaper who was a selfless and caring person that would give all he had to his family and friends without a thought. Many times, he would arrive home around 5 in the evening, eat, and go to sleep only to get back up around 11 to assist the family with David, who would, according to them, begin thrashing, kicking, spitting, and cursing at his mother and his father as well as anyone else who came near him. These actions would continue until the sun came up, according to Ed Warren. The Warrens believed the psychic hours to be between approximately the hours of 9 p.m. and 6 a.m. Well, it was the day after the murder when Lorraine Warren told the Brookfield Police Department that Johnson was possessed when the crime was committed. Martin Manella, who was Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Manella went to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, although neither went to trial. But he planned to fly the exorcism specialists from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcisms if they did not assist with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury, beginning on October 28, 1981. Manella tried to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession, but the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected that defense. Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to a lack of evidence and that it would be irrelative and unscientific to allow related testimony. Well, the defense chose to imply that Johnson acted in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the murder. That jury deliberated for about 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981, of first-degree manslaughter. He was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, although he only served about five of them. While in prison, Johnson married, received a high school degree, earned several other educational certificates, and took a number of college courses, according to Hans Felgeman. Now, Felgeman was the chief of parole for the state corrections department. He said that Arne was an exemplary inmate. 
His mental condition was carefully examined and they found no negative factors. The chairman of the state board, Richard Reddington, said that the board voted unanimously after a hearing in December to allow Johnson's release early. Felsman said that Johnson was released under a program in which he remains under state supervision and did so until 1991. Felsman said Johnson, a tree surgeon before his arrest, had been offered a job, but would not say by whom, nor would he say where Johnson would live. Friends, however, said that Johnson would live in Brookfield with the parents of Deborah Glatzel, whom he married in January of 1984 at the prison. Miss Glatzel's brother, David, was the child on whom the exorcism was performed. She worked at Bono's Brookfield Kennel as well. But maybe the biggest question is this. How and why could or did an 11-year-old boy have to undergo an exorcism to start with? What the hell could he have done that would warrant a demonic possession? Oh yeah, that. Well, it said that someone had dabbled in witchcraft while in upstate New York on a family holiday or getaway, and it allegedly wasn't David. Now, it's been accepted by most religious clergy that there's three stages when dealing with what the Warrens phrased as diabolical possession or demonic possession. Those stages are number one, infestation. Normally you'll hear scratching on walls, things moving on their own, you know, that's what you'll see. And then there's oppression, and then finally, possession. David had experienced at least two and was well on his way into the third when Arne challenged the spirit. We cannot ever overemphasize this enough. Never, under any circumstances, challenge an entity. It'll never end well. Never. Granted, in many cases of possession, however, the victims did not challenge the entities in this way, and maybe not even at all. It seems to be the case that these beings prey on weakened individuals. Now, the Glatzel's telephone number was unlisted, and any efforts to reach Johnson were unsuccessful by media at large. However, at the time, Ed and Lorraine Warren said that Johnson and his wife were very happy. Arne was ready to work for a landscaper in town, and he was coming home to live in a very good family atmosphere, according to Lorraine. Both said Johnson's showed no signs of possession, and by both we mean Ed and Lorraine. Ed said that possession doesn't last 24 hours a day, it comes quickly and leaves quickly. Arne understands what happened to him. Now he knows if something happens how to ward it off, and he won't be stupid enough to take on the devil again. So, where is Arne Johnson now? Well, the justification that Arne only served five out of the ten-year prison sentence was due to good behavior. Before he was released in 1986, he had married Debbie Gladsell while he was in prison in January of 84. Now, although the titles at the end of the film, Conjuring 3, The Devil Made Me Do It, suggest that they are still married, Digital Spy highlights that the director said Debbie passed away shortly before the film made it to cinemas. Now, when they spoke on this back in May, he said that Debbie was there during the exorcism, she was there during the murder, and she testified for him, and she believed. She stood by that. 
and they were married the rest of her life. From what we understand, the reason she passed away was cancer. Despite little being known about his life since this trial, Lorraine Warren suggested that he was going to work for the landscaper on his release. And more recently, Arne and Debbie were involved in marketing for The Devil Made Me Do It, and they had stood by the Warrens' account of these events. While on the other hand, one of their children, Carl, claimed back in 2007 that the Warrens made the story up. Made up or not, this story continues to intrigue people the world over and is without doubt a true mystery and serves as a warning about what not to do in these such cases. Remember to rate the Mountain Mysteries at five stars on Apple Podcasts and take a moment to write a great review, please. You can support the Mountain Mysteries on Patreon with a monthly pledge or make a one-time donation. Subscribe, like, and share to the Mountain Mysteries. In addition, visit us on the net at themountainmysteriespodcast.com. That's themountainmysteriespodcast.com. And interact with us on our official Discord server. Follow us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash themountainmysteries. And tune in for the live videos each Thursday night at 8 p.m. for the Mountain Mysteries gatherings. And remember that right now through June 25th on the themountainmysteriespodcast.com, you can take advantage of a sale of 10% off on all of our clothing and apparel and accessories. And don't forget, if you're a Patreon member, you get 15% off. Look for the coupon code on our Facebook, facebook.com slash themountainmysteries and my own personal Facebook at Chris Sloan. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed bringing it to you. I'm Chris Sloan. For the Mountain Mysteries, the Mountain Mysteries Blurs, and the Mountain Mysteries Gatherings. Until next time, stay mysterious. If you enjoy the Mountain Mysteries, please subscribe and give us a five-star rating. That helps us so much. You can also help support the Mountain Mysteries by visiting our sponsors, whose links are below, or by donating at Patreon or the PayPal link shown in the notes. Patreon subscribers will receive early commercial-free episodes and more. Studio Production.